Well, good morning again. Great to see everyone. Uh, we had to do this one a little bit different uh, because of a couple of audio issues, but it's great to be with you again as we finish this second half. We're finding that some of these flyovers are so important with regard to analyzing our own and diagnosing and dealing with our own doubt as well as anticipating the doubts of others in the future in these major areas. It's just it's so hard for me to be concise. Uh, it's I hope it's not just just empty loquaciousness <laughs> or a uh, you know a, a, a chronic inability to uh, to detect people's boredom or lack of interest. But these are important subjects, enormously important. And uh, you know, again, another a quick word too uh, as we finish out the depression and anxiety and its effect on doubt and doubt's effect. On depression and anxiety in our series the greatest fears and doubts um, this is intended to in fact, most of uh, I, I've always thought that a good uh, teaching augmentation to the preaching every week or the twice a week preaching is digging deeper especially in relevant subjects uh, with regard to the Word of God and the culture in which we live so things that either would be imprudent to pursue by way of time or subject matter or audience on a Sunday morning uh, can be pursued with a little bit more depth and filled out and augmented uh, on a uh, in a Sunday school or, or what we call here a growth class. So that's the idea of what this is all about is to uh, discuss these issues, let you know there are uh, answers and engagements out there that don't normally get either discussed in common Christian conversation or normal Monday Wednesday deployment uh, but that also there uh, have been there's been plenty of thought and uh, ink spilled and ideas put out that are uh, biblical integrous and f functionally uh, successful with regard to dealing with some of these things at least in life so <clears throat> last week you remember we went off uh, it started with some definitions and talked about how the Bible doesn't define uh, depression and anxiety but it does describe it uh, it, and it would describe uh, symptoms that could be fit into what we'd call either the DSM-4 or even a, a more technical manual in the in the psychological realm, psychological studies, academic psychological studies. Uh, we worked with we had we provided two working definitions and looked at some biblical examples, uh, and then we discussed uh, that d depression and anxiety aren't the same thing; they are distinct and different. And some of the answers, biblical approaches, and answers will be different. Uh, uh, in in the application, but interestingly, you can cause what's called a doubt spiral. This is a review from last week. Uh, that doubt can cause depression and anxiety, and depression and anxiety can cause doubt. So you can have this this weird spiral down uh, <clears throat> when when it comes to depression and anxiety. Uh, so anyway, I'd refer you back to the that former audio uh, if you want to listen to that. But we're going to finish this out this week. Remember also, this is attempting to put together a a number of, uh, of, of different uh, teachings into a, into a real, as, as vitamin size a format as I can. Uh, this, I've mentioned last week that this was an extremely successful uh, Sunday school subject uh, when we were, we actually grew it over a summer when most of Fort Myers empties out, when people go back to, after the winter to summer, up in their colder environs up north, our snowbirds as we affectionately refer to them. So, yes, so I stopped last week because we were talking about depression and anxiety remedies. 
uh, and we were talking a little bit about uh, biblical love and joy, but I wanted to stop specifically again on Thanksgiving. I've, I've preached in the auditorium, uh, the, the the big dome on this. Uh, I've uh, talked about it a lot. I wanted to just really double down. Um, we had some of you in class that really, really understood how important gratitude is, but I want to be really, really clear that thankfulness and gratitude is is one of the two what we call, a theologians we call, or biblical scholars, a meta-theme. It is seen most consistently throughout the, the 66 book corpus of the Bible. Uh, these are the two themes, dependence upon God and gratitude to Him. It's a very, very common theme. Hundreds of scriptures uh, directly and, and even more indirectly refer to these things and how important it is uh, for people in their relationship to God to have these two key, key pillars of understanding our relationship uh, to the Almighty. I want to start with Philippians 4.4. 4. Listen to what Paul says here to a church that had a lot of things going right, almost the opposite. It still had issues, but almost the opposite of the Corinthian church. Again, that, that, that book's a, a long scold. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. We talked about how you can't just tell someone to rejoice when they're going through problems. You can't just demand it. It's an indirect thing. But let your gentleness and graciousness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, easier said than done, but in every situation by prayer and petition, listen to this, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So again, this is a balance, a Holy Spirit-led balance. We don't literally just have our prayer life dominated by petition because then we have this weird reverse depression thing or this reverse positivity, negativity, reverse of positivity, negativity going on where you get a... Uh, you just are reminding yourself of everything that God hasn't answered. And it's a laundry list of things that you need and want. Now, again, it says bring your petitions. So you need to bring your petitions, say them out loud to the Lord to acknowledge that he's the one who has control over these things. He's our father. Um, and and look, but, it, but with thanksgiving, you present your request to God, always with thanksgiving. Um, and then the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Listen to this. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, <clears throat> if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. So again, this isn't something you just knuckle down and do, but notice Paul is saying a number of things we told you and we we did before you, you need to imitate and you need to think and and focus focus on positive thankful things for which to be thankful even in the midst of dire circumstances, depression and anxiety. This is so important that you need to speak them out as well. And we talked about the, the gratitude connection to the most effective general revelation or common grace therapy approach uh, to getting people through significantly bad pathological problems in life, and that is cognitive therapy. So again, this is a, a connecting point here. Hundreds of millions of people, if not billions, I mean, if you include the democracy of the dead, attest to the awesome power, you know this, of God's word to transform a life. We've also seen uh, even secular data that backs this up. Um, so again, that it, it, the balance is not that, you know, a, a, a true implementation of Christian application removes all suffering, risk, and hardship, but that it integrates it better than any rival uh, matrix of thought or structure of thought. And this is really an unexpected reversal of Sigmund Freud, who dominated uh, psycho, uh, psychotherapeutic studies, uh, especially in the academic world, for years. 
you remember Freud's idea that the particular laws and rules um, that that the Bible lays out that are commensurate with our design um, uh, are, are repressive and negative. Um, but but this this new data, even secular data, is showing that this is these aren't arbitrary or malevolent bondages. These are design uh, restraints. Uh, you know, and as I say, Christ's constraints are our freedom. Uh, you know, and this is, again, this is one of those odd paradoxes, but it's true that sometimes somebody's uh, passions can, as Edmund Burke said, forge their fetters or their bonds. Well, in a strange way, the Christian uh, restraints or commands or no's um, match our nature and thus bring more long-lasting freedom, uh, happiness, and satisfaction even through and, uh, and most importantly, uh, uh, integrating suffering, hardship, and pain. So Christ's rules or laws actually eventuate greater freedom, uh, possibility, and satisfaction. Um, you know, our pastor uh, here said a couple weeks ago, Jesus did what we needed, not what we wanted. And he asked this really strong rhetorical question, is God still good when he doesn't give you the good you want when you want it? Is God still good in your mind when he's not give you the good you want when you want it? Now, that doesn't mean you have to fake it and act like you're not disappointed. There's a, there's a strong biblical theme of being honest in prayer, but being honest and seeing it through to obedience and trust. I mean, it's all over the Psalms. But let's talk a little bit more about gratitude and thankfulness, even from a, a, a general secular perspective. Uh, this serves gratitude and thankfulness as an intentional part of your focus life is one of those things you're supposed to dwell upon. It's, a, again, a constant a meta theme of the Bible. It is all over the Apostle Paul. Uh, listen just a couple of examples. Colossians 3, 15 and 17. Listen to the three mentions right here. This is Colossians 3, 15 through 17, starting at 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. One sentence right there. Starting 16 here, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Paul again in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, if you ever want to know God's will, maybe not a specific will for your life, but his will, rejoice always, pray continually, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now again, let's not fall into that uh, like lowbrow, internet atheism, kind of low level. Pray continually, that means you don't do anything but pray all the time. No, he's just saying keep in an attitude of prayer, which is keeping God at the forefront of your mind as best you can. Considering him in your acts. Uh, knowledge of God is the beginning of wisdom. Knowledge of the Holy One is the beginning of understanding. So, so as a shield, why do we say gratitude is a shield? Because there's been a ton of secular data on this. The world expert on gratitude and thankfulness is a uh, professional psychologist. He happens to be a Christian. He trained under Dallas Willard at the University of Southern California, Dr. Robert Emmons. I believe he works at the University of California, Davis. Again, the world expert on gratitude and thankfulness. He says that of the big three that have to be there for mental well-being or deep satisfaction, that's the big three, are optimism, purpose, and gratitude. He said gratitude is far and away the most important. It's so important you should prescribe out loud gratitude events in your life where you say them out loud, where you write them, 
where you repeat them. Uh, a lot of the, again, the, the Psalms are filled with admonishing, gracious, gratitude, thankful Psalms to God. So why? He says, well, again, millions of dollars have been spent on this. And again, some of his colleagues were, were skeptical about this because they knew some of his motivation was to say, well, is this meta theme of the Bible something that we can measure and poll people about in, 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 this, in the world of academic psychology and see uh, how, how it works out? And it, is, it, it, it blew even him away. Um, his book called Thanks is the, is the popular level version of his Ph.D., uh, dissertation and his, his research, the uh, the technical version that's used sometimes as textbooks at different schools is called the Psychology of Gratitude, or uh, uh, both by again Dr. Robert Emmons. <clears throat> so again, uh, this is an, it, it. It serves as one of the main functions. It serves as a shield. So think about it this way: if you are truly grateful, it's impossible to have counter emotions to that at the same time. You can't be say thankful and envious simultaneously. Um, thankfulness also nullifies our insatiable, sometimes Western materialistic consumerist mindset, um, which tends to erase true joy and happiness. You think about the advertising world. If you want to put it in one sentence, it's to replace your old satisfactions with dissatisfaction. Uh, you, you shouldn't be satisfied with the old iPhone 8, you need 9. So, um, so again, um, thanksgiving and gratitude... Uh, are the sine qua non of happiness, without which you can have no happiness. They're the most important referenced meta-strategy for happiness, and this has been verified by researchers that do not share our view of the Word of God, do not share our view of God, but both Berkeley and Harvard have, fo have followed Emmons, and, and one I know in an effort to try to refute him, and have just not only confirmed his, his research, but actually bolstered it by even more positive uh, outcomes for people that are truly, they've had measures for people that are truly thankful. You've met people who have just said thank you and they didn't really mean it. Though The ones that tend to mean it and really internalize have all sorts of physical and mental uh, correlative benefits. So again, cognitive behavioral therapy, um, again, big, big deal. I'm going to go through a couple things here. Again, just a short list of uh where the Bible and even secular general revelation, common grace, psychology dovetail, where if we'd have just listened and taken the Bible more seriously, we'd had a, a much better go of it uh, here. But these are just some some um, some check boxes for a, for for Christians that are reflective and and would like to make the best of living in a compromised, fallen world uh, that are, that are right out of the Word of God that also have been verified even without a, an acknowledgement of who God is by a largely still godless uh, majority community of psycho, uh, psychologists and psychiatrists and therapists. The first is, again, just like I said, cognitive therapy, the idea of speaking truths that are qualifying of the negative event in your life out loud. This isn't denying the negative event. This isn't turning lemons to lemonade. It is saying related truths that are connected to gratitude, blessing, positivity, uh, and hope that are true things um, uh, alongside the affirmation that this is a negative thing that's happened to you instead of just dwelling on the one negative thing and dwelling it and doing downstacking to suicide or suicidal ideation. One of the ways the Bible describes this is in Psalm 30. Uh, uh, Psalm uh, 39, in one way, this honesty uh, idea. And then in Psalm 126, we get this idea of planting your tears and planting your fears. And this is the way to say this is just, again, um, 
that the ther- that there's a lot of good research therapy behind a good cry. Uh, it is actually good for you. It's it's good for your brain and good for your body. Um, uh, again, it can it can be cheapened by overuse, especially if you're doing it to to in front of someone. But in Psalm 39, 12 through thirteen, it 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 the the psalmist gets very very honest about how how bad he's feeling. Um, he said he'll even take living with God as a stranger and just begs God not to be deaf uh, to their prayers and ignore their cries, uh, the psalmist there. So it, it's it's a very, very honest part of the Psalter. Uh, again, just that God is okay with you being honest, even angry with him, he can handle it, but then never staying there, right? Just like in the Garden of Gethsemane, in, in Jesus' last hours before uh, his passion, you know, you get the perfect model of prayer, perfect honesty, Lord, let this cup ha- pass from me. Um, anguished like none other, but not my will but thine. Perfect obedience and trust. Um, in Psalm 126, 1 through 6, you talk. that's where the actual, it says sowing or planting of your tears and then later your fears. And you're, you're going to reap songs of joy for those that plant their tears in honest but thankful and hopeful prayers. So honest prayers, but never stopping there. On to grateful prayers, hopeful prayers, and prayers of trust. So you don't you don't stop there. You're honest in prayer, but you have a trajectory of hope because you remind yourself out loud verbally about what's also true about what's going on as you send your prayers on a trajectory of of what God's done, what He's doing at the moment, what He continues to do. Um, consistent engagement and melodic worship is really important, really high-quality worship, very easy to do nowadays with the, the information age and the advent of you know, all the negatives we get with technology. This is a positive. But to, uh, to take the focus off yourself and put a strong, emotive, loud, melodic, memorable praise to a being that's worthy of this kind of focus and attention is, it, for some people that describe it as feels like taking a shower, mental shower. Um, I can attest to this sort of thing. And again, if, if you're not in the mood for melodic praise, it doesn't mean you have to do it, knuckle down. But I, I just start saying out loud things I'm thankful for, even things as basic as walking and seeing and having still having a wife and life, uh, having a relationship with my kids, uh, things that you couldn't put a price tag on, but you forget about them because you get just so used. Familiarity breeds first apathy and sometimes contempt. So true worship is really, really important. You know, I can remember a pastor's dad during his Wednesday series on relighting and reuniting your spiritual fire about how important it is to get melody, song, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We saw that in Philippians, the Philippians passage earlier, how important it is. It's also a biblical concept to fiercely resist victim mentality. That's the, that's, it's valorized in our culture today. The victim is the, the last moral person, is the victim. Um, self-pity is to be actively and consistently fought. Um, it, it's, it's crazy, the data on this, the general revelation data in the, in, in the uh, social sciences on this. It's absolutely stunning that even if you are an authentic victim, you've been authentically victimized, the quicker you can get out of dwelling in that mindset of being one, the faster you'll get to the deeper, uh, lasting satisfaction. Um, counting the cost, remembering that in a fallen world, everything has a cost. That even your greatest wins sometimes carry seeds in them of, of uh, unintended consequences. And your greatest losses aren't fully despair-orienting losses because they usually carry, again, unexpected uh, positivity as well. So counting the cost and realizing that everything has a cost in a fallen world. 
that there are no clean solutions, only trade-offs. Uh, cost and benefit issues always happen in a fallen, compromised world. The idea that suffering is a crucial component to a weighty life is something that humans tend to forget, especially Christians. Uh, we tend to fall into the idea that uh, because we can make progress in certain areas like academics and building buildings and chemical compounds that the more word and the more time and the more effort and that sort of thing should make us immune to hardship, suffering, and pain. But the reality is those things deepen us. And sometimes those milestones prepare us for these things. You just don't get away from these things. God uses suffering to get us in a place that we likely wouldn't otherwise get without it. So we have to come to terms with that and not see suffering as automatically God's judgment and automatically, or conversely, automatically God's silence or his disappointment, his disapproval, or his, you know, him being asleep at the wheel. Uh, another one that was brought to me by uh, one, of our, uh, one of our class members last week, very, very important, and I, I should have included it because it's also biblical as well, but idle hands do tend to be the devil's workshop. That's not a scripture, but putting your hands to work uh, as a, 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 a distraction that's based in contribution and, and building something or making something better in the world is really more important than, than dwelling and dwelling and dwelling on something that you don't currently have the tools, mental or physical, to solve. So uh, get busy, get to work, try to make what you can, what you do currently have limited control over better. Uh, confession is paramount. We've talked about this before in here. Uh, it, it's prior to true repentance. Confession is another way you could say it in, in modern vernacular, in modern you know colloquialism would be owning it, owning it. You, if you don't own it, you can't really repent of it. You have to identify what's wrong and what you've done before you can truly be sorry for it, and then move on from just feelings of sorrow to things that show evidence of sorrow. What we'd say the big R, the three R's, right? Uh, re repentance, restitution. Uh, remorse and regret, uh, you know, four hours there, but I, I was just saying of repentance, those those big evidenced versions of that sort of thing. And then forgiveness training is absolutely crucial. Um, we know that forgiveness doesn't come natural to humans. Again, really uh, uh, interesting sermon uh, that I did some, some years ago. Um, it just doesn't come natural to human beings, but it is an enormously important. The, probably the, the foremost expert is UCLA's Steve Marmer on how important forgiveness is psychologically. He's put his entire practice and, and research around this as well. But it doesn't come naturally to humans to either give or receive forgiveness, but it's of utmost importance. And we see this in the when Jesus teaches his disciples and us by extension how to pray, he doubles down on one. The one theme he doubles down on and really doubles down on it is forgiveness there in that passage. Or, or if you've truly, truly understood how much you need grace, you're going to give some of it if you really feel like you've been forgiven of a lot. Um, so what do we do when sin's involved as well? Again, you confess and repent, own it and turn from it. Again, it's not easy. You need to ask yourself the question, uh, what evidence is there that I've actually confessed and repented? What evidence? It's not just a mental turn. What evidence is there that that's taken place? Um you know, there's three different types of forgiveness, basic types of forgiveness that Marmer lays out. Uh, you see different examples of this in the Bible. Um, <clears throat> there is a restitution type, restoration forgiveness, that, that where there's a full offering of forgiveness by the person, and the person who offended is fully owning it. 
and there is a possibility of not only reconnection, but actually bolstering and strengthening the relationship. You can see this sometimes in, in weird events where guys will get in a fight with one another and they earn some sort of odd respect for one another and then physical fight with one another and then they end up becoming friends later or start off in a bad way and somehow build respect through the through equal respect through the competition or through some sort of a you know un- understanding where they went wrong in the first analysis or the first impression um, the second is called forbearance it's uh, wait and see it's uh, you know test and see um, you give the forgiveness the other person uh, the other person uh, is is asking for it, but they're not owning all of it. They're owning a portion of it, still making excuses, still handing some over to you or some over to circumstance. So that's a that's a uh, test and see. Um, that's not a, you don't stay there forever, but you just you're careful. You're more careful of that kind of forgiveness. You still give it, but it's one of those things where you you know the trust is rebuilt. That's natural. Trust isn't given; it's it's built. And then last is uh, called release forgiveness, where the other person is not accepting any of it. They don't confess. They haven't come to you in forgiveness. And therefore, it's not true biblical forgiveness because someone needs to ask for it. They need to own enough of something to ask for it. But the, we're still called to get rid of toxic emotions about it by our understanding of who God is and our releasing it to him in prayer and in submission. So, so again, that last type of forgiveness is really, really important. Again, we went over this in, at length, not only in the sermon, but in the in the uh, in the <clears throat> Sunday school series, which I'm going to remake and probably do it with, with a little bit more, uh, uh, just updated a bit. So, uh, what else can can someone do when they find themselves in this position? Not not that their depression, anxiety is totally their fault. There ha- there are extenuating circumstances, true victimhood, uh, chemical imbalances uh, by by way of habitual bad decisions in the past or just genetically. But you can do what a lot of people find uh, to do in these scenarios and are suggested to do, and it's dwelling in God's promises. So again, you remind yourself of these things and bring them before your mind. Like what you asked that, for example, that God will make you holy, and that's not usually pleasant. That's Ephesians 4.13 and Philippians uh, 1.6, that God will make all things new, Isaiah 65. That'll wipe away every tear eventually in restoration, Revelations 21.4. That'll eventually see God, Job 19 and 1 Corinthians 13. That suffering is not at all, any suffering temporally on this world is not at all equal to the coming reward, Romans 8. And that God works even the worst things for the good of the kingdom and for those that love him, Romans 8 again. Uh, The idea of the Lord is sufficient. As hard as that is to understand, that may be the key issue for human beings, that God is sufficient. The Lord is sufficient, Psalm 23. And Deuteronomy 31, God never leaves us nor forsakes us. Another thing you can do is dwell in some of the characteristics of God because uh, of their the, the quality of those characteristics, supremely perfect. We can uh, it, we can get great draw great comfort from this uh, this being that dwells beyond. Uh, the, the the general limitations of physical things. So uh, God is called living water. You know, we need water to live. We're made up largely of water. He's called living water in John four, uh, called the bread of life. God and Jesus called the bread of life in John six. If you focus on the omnis, omnipotence, omnipresence, omnibenevolence, um, uh, omniscience, all knowingness. So God knows the end from the beginning. He's true to His word. Um, he's Alpha and Omega. He's also a father. He's not just really powerful and incredibly intelligent and in- uh, unbelievably creative, but he's also father. He wants to be as close as the strongest 
blood bond possible, parent to child, child to parent. Um, he's loving, he's compassionate, he's caring, he's just. He's fair. He's the most fair and just being in the universe. Far more fair and just than us in our, in our miniature, small assessment of who he is. It's one of the worst parts of the age in which we live. God's put in the dock and judged to be inadequate. Remember Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. So you see this in the Word. Dwelling on God's character and His promises is extreme. It's biblical, and it is remarkably helpful. This is something where you see some of the greatest counselors for life of the mind and counsel that came right out of the Word of God were the Puritans. They were incredible at this, incredible resources. And I, I provided those in the email to you as well, the Puritan resources for counseling and then the book uh, as a suggestion at the end of your handout. Dwelling in the work of Christ. Uh, again, in Gethsemane, we see the perfect prayer, right? Uh, that God isn't just all-powerful, but he made himself vulnerable for us. A greater love hath no man than this, and lay down his life for his friends. And, you know, another is to remember, this is letter E on your handout, bringing the church in. Uh, you know, the social network, I did, you know, we had a, that sounds like Facebook now, but the social, the true social network, face-to-face, body-to-body, in-person social network, you just need others. You're not supposed to go this alone. Hebrews 10, 24, don't forsake the gathering of believers together. James 5, confess to one another and pray for one another. Galatians 2, bear one another's burdens. And last, learning to make God our most prized possession. This is not easy, but you take your heart off of idols that are supposed to help you feel like you're a person. You're worthy of life, that this is who you are. This makes you worthy. This makes you who you are. Those have a strong, even when they're blessings of God, they're the strongest candidates for being idols in your life. Even good things, not just bad things, not just vices, but virtues as well. Um, just a, again, a quick reminder of the Puritans. Uh, they were committed to the functional authority of Scripture. That's a big deal. Um, for them, the Scripture was the comprehensive manual for dealing with problems of the heart and the mind. Um, again, uh, I, I, it's one of the best most sophisticated and sensitive systems of diagnosis for personal problems I've ever seen. And it's right out of the Word of God. Uh, they distinguish a variety of physical, spiritual, and temperamental and demonic causes. Um, uh, again, Puritans developed an unbelievable balance in their, sorry, like you always say unbelievable, but a remarkable balance in their treatment. You know, because they weren't just invested in one personality theory or set of theories uh, other than biblical teaching about the heart. So they really tried to let the Word speak to them about human anthropology. And, you know, again, Western education was dominated by a Pauline biblical anthropology for a long, long time. That would be, even without the Bible, at least at, the, at, at a bare-bones level, the crooked timber of humanity. Uh, very, very important that human beings weren't perfectible or started Rousseauian in some sort of tabula rasa, blank slate perfection, and then culture or family or the, you know, man is everywhere free but born in chains because of the culture that's around him. Um, no, we had a different view on that at all. It's called, the again, as Thomas Sowell puts, one of the basic divisions between uh, believers and unbelievers or conservatives and liberals or, you know, what we would call traditionalist progressives is the idea of a, a tragic vision of reality, that, that we don't believe uh, that humans begin perfect. We don't believe they can be perfected. Uh, again, this tragic view says that we're always looking at, instead of full solutions and perfection, we're looking for trade-offs. And that's not a cop-out. That's the way reality is. And Sol wouldn't say this, but I'll say it in a fallen, compromised world.
where you have a, uh, a world that's under God's control, but you still have Satan roaming about as a lion seeking whom he may devour. So again, uh, listen to J.I. Packer, the late J.I. Packer, probably one of the best-known 20th century theologians, very well respected. The Puritans were the strongest, just where evangelical Christians today are the weakest. Here were men of women of outstanding intellectual power and whom the mental habits fostered by sober scholarship were linked with a flaming zeal for God and a minute acquaintance with the human heart. So again, their zeal for God was informed by the scriptures and they had an acquaintance with the human heart through the scriptures. So again, um, listen to Packer talk about modern counselors. You guys know that what we've talked about in here before. There's all there's 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 much much more bad counselors than good counselors. I don't. Here's I've got a couple of ideas about why there are more bad therapists than good ones. Uh, part of it is they don't use God at the beginning of their wisdom and knowledge and understanding. It's, it, they're largely operating just in the realm of general revelation. That's part of it. The other part, though, the two more common reasons is, one, they fail to apply it since they don't have the Holy Spirit. Secular therapists or even Christian therapists, when they don't apply what they're suggesting to others, they can't apply it successfully in their own life. It rings hollow when people find this out. And this, again, doesn't mean perfection, but it means you have to have some acquaintance with this application actually working and resulting in something the thing, the the outcomes you're assuming, and last but not least, they just don't tend to keep up in the field. The field is growing, and then in the information age, it's going, it's growing so fast, it becomes almost impossible to keep up with all the research after your your college training. All right, so um, as we close here, uh, I just wanted to give a couple of things, uh, a couple of ideas as we close here. Christian happiness. Um, very very interesting. One of the shortest sermons was one of the most powerful Jonathan Edwards gave. Again, he's it's really unfortunate that one of the greatest theologians that this nation has ever produced, Jonathan Edwards, uh, he's just, he's known most of, <laughs> most widely for his sinners in the hands of an angry God and the spider hanging over the flames of hell and the web burning up and the spider burning up. Um, it's actually a really well-structured and powerful sermon, but again, it's just, uh, people find it to be too, <laughs> too caustic and too... <laughs> non-consumers today to handle Jonathan Edwards. There's also issues in his past. Um, but before I get there, uh, uh, I just want to say he, he gave a talk on Christian happiness. And he said a Christian should have a basic difference between a non-Christian and their view of happiness. And I used to think this is just ancient happiness versus contemporary. Contemporary happiness is, you know, a, a sensate, momentary, my team won, or I just had a Krispy Kreme donut, moment of silence. And ancient happiness was more whole life integrating. It could integrate suffering. It could integrate learning. It could integrate miniature hardships for greater goods. So it was just more life, what the ancients called eudaimonia. Very, very different. But listen to what Edward said. There's three basic ways a Christian should always remind themselves that their happiness is going to be fundamentally different than a secularized, non-God, non-divine, non-biblically informed happiness, non-Christian happiness. And it's this. For first, the Christian's bad things will work out for the good, Romans 8, 28. Their bad things will and can become good things. God's in the business of taking supernaturally ashes and turning them to beauty. So that's something to remember that even when your fallen nature and the, the, the evil one gets the best of you, God's in the business. That's the whole story of Christianity, taking the worst thing and turning it like a judo move, taking your, your opponent's forward momentum and turning it into the best thing. Two, Christians' good things, that is adoption into God's family, 
justification of our past penalties in his sight and union with him in the future glorification cannot be taken away. They can be forfeited. I'll say that. I'll make sure to say that. They can't be taken away. So their bad things will work out for good, and their good things, the most important things, can't be taken away, though they can be forfeited. And last, the very best things for the Christian, life in heaven, the new heavens, the new earth, and resurrection, are yet to come, and I would add, are evidenced really, really well. So that's Revelation 22.1 again. So again, want to put it in a one-sentence summary of John Edwards there. Uh, our bad things will turn out for good. Our good things cannot be taken away, and the best is yet to come. Think about such things, Philippians 4. Very, very important to focus on those things, especially when you're going through hardship and in times where you're not always up and happy all the time. So how long should I expect uh, the rhetorical question there in your handout? Should it take me to get rid of my depression or anxiety? Uh, hard to know. Um I do know that uh, with cognitive therapy, um, and this is all the way from uh, the, the, the wonderful book, You Are Not Your Brain by Dr. Jeffrey Schwartz out of UCLA, all the way to Bacchus and Chapion's book, I think in the fourth edition, Telling Yourself the Truth, uh, even in Martin, some of Martin Seligman's uh, Hat Works on Happiness, you should be seeing significant evidence results of different habits by anywhere between uh, low-end six to seven weeks high-end uh, uh, 10 to 12 weeks. So we're talking uh, somewhere in, in the vicinity of about three months, two to three months of focused, habitual, uh, speaking, qualifying ideas out loud around your suffering and hardship and despair, speaking gratitude out loud, saying your prayers out loud to force mental focus. Very, very important. If I haven't told you about that book, incredible. Uh, Gosh, there's so much to say about Jeffrey Schwartz, but that's that's for the longer version. Um, so uh, what about medicine? What does that have to say about depression and anxiety? I want to be really careful here. Again, like I've said before, um, I, I am not against a Christian taking meds for uh, imbalances. I, at the end of the day, aspirin, which I do take, is is taking a, a medication for an imbalance and usually to thin your blood a bit. Um, I, that's why I'm not against somebody getting epidural. I mean, again, the, the fight rages on and on about whether that's great for the kids. Uh, there's a ton of evidence that it's it's a fairly benign thing that really reduces the pain. I mean, I don't know where you are on anesthesia. I think it's the, I actually think it's the greatest, uh, the greatest invention of the last 500 years is anesthesia of all of them, including AC, Bless be God. Um, but the foundational problem is this. Uh, we are not all physical. And we tend to live in a culture that doesn't have a soul-mind uh, integration into the physical. This is why psychiatry and, and big pharma has really, really overtaken uh, psychology, which used to be far more common. Um, the ascendance of psychiatry over psychology, we, talk, we call it. Making a diagnosis is difficult. Um, and then explaining chemical imbalance theory.